0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. I uh, want you to know that I am extremely privileged to be a pastor, and I am so grateful to be a part of Christ Community Bible Church. And I just want you to know that although we may not look like much on the surface, I really, truly believe that by God's grace and for His glory that we can be a strategic instrument for the Great Commission. And really that, that begins in really small tiny, seemingly insignificant ways. And I'm going to tell you two of those ways now that I believe that you can make this church a strong, healthy church that can be used to advance the great commission. Number one, one of the ways that we can be everything you've ever wanted this church to be is if you make a commitment right now to make sure that you are richly indwelt by the word of Christ. You see, healthy churches are composed by healthy individuals, and the way healthy people get healthy is through uh, the power of God's Word, studied and meditated upon. And so I pray for you every week, individually by name, that you would be richly indwelt by the Word of Christ. And And if every member is a meditator on the Scriptures, oh, what kind of church we would be. Number two, the uh, another way that we can strategically be a healthy church is through uh, hospitality. Hospitality is profoundly supernatural. This is not normal in the world. And, and really, what hospitality is, is you having people into your home, sacrificing for them, and investing in them with the Word of God, pouring out, you know, confessing your sins and, and talking about your struggles and difficulties and challenges. That is profoundly supernatural, and that is radical and, and virtually unknown outside of the church. And I just want you to know that how you become a healthy church is by doing those simple strategies strategic kinds of things that produces healthy churches. And so I encourage you this week to look across afterwards, find someone you don't know very well, and I want you to invite them into your home, schedule something and and have them over because that is what's going to make a healthy church. So grateful for you, thankful for you. The elders are uh, uh, beginning to plan and strategize our long-term vision and strategy as a church. And so we'll keep you updated on those things as we go. So I'm grateful for you. But I want to begin this morning by saying that there's a problem with human beings. And the problem with human beings is not that we crave happiness and satisfaction. That's not the problem. The problem with human beings is that we are willing to settle for such paltry things to get it. In other words, everybody without exception longs to be happy. No, it's more than that. Every person without exception longs to be satisfied. I mean, isn't that true? Is there not within every human being the raw, consuming thirst to be supremely satisfied by something? Is there not within you that deep, pulsing, craving to be as satisfied as you possibly can be? Because if you're honest with yourself, you admit that there is, and it drives everything you do. But you see, the reason, the deepest reason why the human race as a whole is so miserable, get this, is not because they want to be satisfied, but because they seek their highest satisfaction in what can never, ever provide it. You see, the black hole of the soul has an infinite capacity to be satisfied. And make no mistake, that is not accidental. That is by design. That is how God made us. God gave us insatiable longings to be satisfied all so that God himself could satisfy those desires with himself. I mean, Don't you see? Wealth, sex popularity, power, success, productivity, education, achievements, nothing can compare with God, which means anything else to which you look other than God for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction, mark my words, you will be bitterly disappointed. And speaking of being bitterly disappointed, that is exactly the kind of person we find in our text this morning. See, this morning we encounter a woman who, just like us, thirsts in her soul. And this woman, like many of us, spent so much of her life chasing after things that would never, ever satisfy this woman, like many of us, had a scandalous past of, of, uh, sh- uh, of shameful acts and stupid decisions that made her calloused and miserable. And yet, like many of us, she had a life-changing encounter with the only one who could possibly satisfy, namely Jesus Christ himself. You see, what you're about to witness is one of the most thrilling salvation conversations in the history of thrilling salvation conversations and it's between Christ and one of the most seemingly unlikely people to ever get saved. You see what we're about to see that the conversation we're about to see happen should have almost never happened. Do you know why? Because the person that Christ encounters in the text, get this, she was a woman. <laughs> a woman and in that day, the men's self righteous attempts to be holy went way over the top, and they wound up treating women like biohazardous materials to be avoided and ignored. She was a woman. Strike one. But not only that, this woman was a Samaritan woman, which meant she was a part of a race of dirty half breeds, typically despised and hated by their Jewish neighbors. Strike two. And finally, this person who was a woman, who was a Samaritan, was also an immoral adulteress with a filthy past, which meant she was also an outcast even by her own people, strike three. And yet Jesus Christ, the great soul hunter, The one who came to earth to seek and save the lost wanders into Samaria, and when they meet, he offers her the most soul-satisfying object in existence, which means he offers her a way to get reconciled to God as the treasure of her soul. And you see, that right there is why the Gospel of John exists. It's in your Bibles to help people get reconciled to God as the highest treasure in the universe. And I I don't know what it is that drove you this morning to walk through those doors, but one thing I do know is that every single person in this room thirsts in their soul. And to prepare you for what you're about to hear, I have four kinds of thirsty people in mind. And every one of you fits in one of these categories. Four kinds of thirsty people first. Some of you here are thirsty believers. You're thirsty believers, which means imperfect though you may be, you genuinely thirst for Jesus Christ and you want to increase that thirst more than ever. And good news this morning is for you. Others of you here are thirsty strugglers. You do at times thirst for Christ. But you have spent so much time drinking from the shallow streams of sin. You hate the taste of sin after you give into it, but you just keep going back for more and more and more, and you have no idea how to stop going back. I just want you to know this morning is also for you. And some of you here maybe are thirsty make believers. You think you know Christ. You assume you're okay with God. You have some right answers. You, you, you know the lingo. You get the culture. You know how to blend into a congregation. But maybe, just maybe, there's no life in your soul. Maybe you're spiritually dead, just like the woman that we are about to encounter, which means this morning is also for you. And then finally this morning, some of you here possibly are thirsty skeptics. You thirst, all right. Oh, you do thirst. But the last thing for which you thirst is God, and you are thoroughly unpersuaded by the claims of Christ. You do not want what he's selling. Thank you very much. And if that is you, I am so glad you're here because this morning is most definitely for you. So let's look at John 4 verses 1 through 15, and let's learn together how to never thirst again. And believe it or not, I specifically chose this text for Mother's Day, which is a weird way to try to encourage mothers because no woman in this room is like the woman we're about to see in the text. And yet, and yet, the kinds of things that Christ says to this woman are exactly what women and wives and mamas need to hear. So here we go. This morning I want to want you to see from our text five lessons. Five lessons Christ has to teach us, designed to persuade us that He is superior to everything in the universe. Does that for lofty? five lessons that christ has to teach us designed to persuade us that he is superior to everything in the universe and we're going to see those five lessons but first but first i want us to walk through the text i want us to see one of the most thrilling salvation conversations ever recorded and so if you like roadmaps i've got one let's begin first with what i'm calling a strangeness scenario a strange scenario Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus knew, therefore, that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now you can tell, can't you? There's all sorts of moving parts going on here, so we need to unfold this bizarre scenario. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know that at this point, Christ has been in Jerusalem since chapter 2, doing remarkable things, doing controversial things, doing unexplainable things. He had only very recently launched his public ministry just a few months before this moment, and yet the news about him is going viral. He is the trending topic on Facebook. He has gone public with his messianic glory. Everybody is talking about him. And yet you remember, don't you, that at this point, John the Baptist is also still doing his thing? Not in competition with Christ, but in collaboration with Christ. You see, John the Baptist, he was the preview. Christ was the main attraction. He was the assist. Christ was the slam dunk. You get the idea. You see, John the Baptist, his job was to help people see that they were desperate sinners who desperately needed a Savior. And when that Savior, when that Messiah arrived onto the scene of history, people were supposed to leave John the Baptist and they were supposed to follow the Messiah. That was the plan. The shrinking ministry of John the Baptist, the expanding ministry of Christ, that was supposed to happen. And yet, some people misunderstood People seem to think that there was some sort of rivalry, as if first century Israel was this presidential race with these two quasi-celebrities running competing ministries in opposition to one another. Now, it was not that, mind you, but you could see how one would think that. And so look what John the author says. Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, that's a real problem. It's a real problem. You know why? Because the Pharisees were a real problem. I mean, sure, they were the spiritual leaders over the whole country, but what they really were was a spiritual cancer that did more harm than good. I mean, they were already suspicious of John the Baptist. And now that Christ has stolen the show, they're beginning to get fearful and paranoid. You see, the Pharisees were the ancient trolls before there was an internet. They were political, powerful, self-righteous, and spiritually dead. And they were like vultures, always just kind of lurking, waiting around, looking for an opportunity to pick a fight. And although verse two says that it wasn't actually Christ, but his disciples doing the baptizing, it didn't matter, it didn't matter. Christ didn't need that kind of negative publicity coming from the Pharisees. So verse three says that he packed his bags, left Jerusalem, went back to Galilee, 60 miles north, away from Jerusalem, And Jerusalem was so hostile, in fact, that he didn't go back there for another year. But you know, just as well as I do, that Christ oftentimes did things that were countercultural, unconventional, seemingly absurd, seemingly even irrational. And that brings us next to a sovereign necessity. A sovereign necessity. We just saw a strange scenario. Let's see a sovereign necessity in verses 4 through 6. Look first at verse 4. The text says, And it was necessary for he, that is Christ, to pass through Samaria. Or your version might say, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, here's the thing. Any first century Jew reading the gospel of John who knew anything about Israel's history would have been shocked by verse four. Do you know why? Because it said it was necessary for Christ to pass through Samaria. And geographically, that was true. To get to Washington from California, you've got to cut through Oregon. To get to Galilee from Jerusalem, you have to cut through Samaria. But the problem is no first century Jew in their right mind would have ever cut through Samaria. You go around Samaria. Do you know why? Because, put it in its most crude terms, the lines of hostility were so deep between Jews and Samaritans that it makes the lines of black-white segregation in early America seem warm and fuzzy in comparison. Bottom line, to the Jews, the Samaritans were a race of half-breed Jews who intermarried with Assyrian pagans 700 years before this moment, and they got all entangled in idolatry and immorality. Bottom line, to the Jews, the Samaritans were traitors. In 400 BC, they even built their own rival temple in competition to the one in Jerusalem. And so to the Jews, the Samaritans were ceremonially unclean. They were racially impure and they were religiously heretical. There was never a reason compelling enough to convince a serious Jew to do what Christ is about to do. And yet you know that Christ is not your everyday average Jew with an ax to grind with Samaritans. Because I want you to notice very carefully what the text says. Look again at verse four. And it was necessary for he to pass through Samaria. Samaria. Again, just just think about that. Had to pass through. Literally, it was necessary to pass through Samaria. What do you mean it's necessary to pass through Samaria? It is never necessary to pass through Samaria. You go around Samaria. Or do you? Because I'll have you know that every time John uses that word had to or must in his gospel. It always describes events of infinite significance. For instance, chapter 3, verse 6, you must be born again. Same word. Chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. Same word. Chapter 4, verse 24, if you're going to worship the Father, you must worship him in spirit and truth. Same word. John 10, 16, I have other sheep. I must find them also. Same word. And chapter 20, verse 9, it says that Christ must raise from the dead. You guessed it. Same exact word. So the implication in verse 4 is that Christ passing through Samaria was not just a geographical necessity. It was a divine necessity. He had to go there because there was someone in Samaria, even the most unlikely of people, about to have their universe turned upside down. We're about to see who that is, but notice, notice verse 5. Look at the text. He, that is Christ, came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the region which Jacob gave to Joseph, his son. Now, have you ever Bend to a city where the sign as you enter in says something about that city that explains why it's so significant. For instance, in Spokane, as you enter in, there's this sign that says Spokane, the lilac city, which is a joke because the lilacs are about a month of, of the year. Yakima, my hometown, as you enter in, there's a sign outside the town that says, Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington, which is ridiculous. (laughs) And you've got New York, the Big Apple, Reno, the biggest city in the world. You've got LA, the City of Angels, and you have Sikar, the place which Jacob gave to Joseph. Same thing. You see, Sychar, the city, was historically and theologically significant because it was the land that Jacob gave to Joseph, his son. And why that matters at all to you is because you know that God singled out Jacob to be the one through whom he would advance his plan. And so the point is, Samaritans used their land as proof that they were just as much, if not more, entitled than Jews to a piece of the pie of God's blessing. And just like Philadelphia has the Liberty Bell and New York has the Statue of Liberty, Sychar also had its famous historical monument that put them on the map. And what it was, was a well. A well of water personally dug and built by Jacob himself some 2,000 years before this moment, and yet someone infinitely more significant than Jacob was about to visit this well, namely the God of Jacob himself. Look at verse six. Now there there was the well of Jacob. Jesus, therefore, having been wearied from the journey, sat thus at the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now do you see what's about to happen here? That well and the water in that well are about to be used by Christ for one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities in history But but did you notice, I'm wondering, did you notice the breathtaking irony in the text? It said, Jesus, having been wearied from his journey, sat thus at the well. I mean, do you feel this? this? This is subtle, but this is so profound. You see, when you see Christ wearied and exhausted, and fatigued, you are getting a microscopic glimpse into one of the most profound mysteries there is. God, without ever ceasing for one moment to be fully God, became fully man. God, the Son, became what he was not, without ever ceasing to be what he always had been. In other words, God became a man without ever ceasing to be fully God. I mean, think about it: the same God who created the sun came to earth and perspired under its heat. The same God who has infinite power to uphold the universe was exhausted by his journey and he needed to rest. He was fully man, living, breathing, feeling, experiencing. If you cut him, he would bleed. If you crucified him, he would die. But the infinite difference between him and every other human being is that this human being was God. So I just need to ask you this morning, what do you perceive God to be like? Maybe the better question is what are your misconceptions about God that need to be deconstructed and then reconstructed by the incarnation? Because don't you see, don't you see it? The way to find out who God is is by especially seeing how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. I mean, some people secretly think in churches all across America that, well, I actually prefer Christ over the God of the Old Testament, and that doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. The fullest and clearest manifestation of who God is is most distinctly displayed in Jesus Christ. And so I need you, I need you to get this this morning. Christ is not some unsympathetic slave master. No, he is a divine, sympathetic high priest who experienced all of the agonies of being human. He gets it. He knows what you need as a human because he himself became a human and he lived it all. And here he is, thirsty and fatigued with blisters and exhaustion, leaning up a well in the middle of Samaria. And here's where the real intrigue begins. That brings us next to a salvation presentation. A salvation presentation in verses 7 through 12. And well, well, well. Look who shows up to the well in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came in order to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give to me a drink. Now you have to understand something. Things instantaneously just got awkward here. Really, really awkward. And it got awkward for three reasons. Number one. Verse 7 just said that the time of day was about the sixth hour. It's about 12 p.m. That's around lunchtime. And that's incredibly significant. Do you know why? Because that's not just sort of FYI, set the scene details. No, it's significant because it's just so weird. You see, women in Israel never drew water alone, and they never did so in the middle of the day. They always came to the well to draw water in groups, and they did so in the morning or in the evening. I mean, this would be like shopping for groceries at 3 a.m. or mowing your lawn at midnight. I mean, you just don't do that. that. That's weird. And yet she did do that, probably because she was hoping to avoid human contact. And when you want to avoid human contact, it's probably because you have something to hide. As we're about to find out, she did have something to hide. We see in verse 18 that she was the social and moral outcast of the entire city. She was the town floozy, the neighborhood bimbo, the skank down the street. I mean, her life had been an absolute train wreck of adulteries and divorces and decades of ruined relationships strewn throughout her body like like corpses on a battlefield. And at this moment, she was living in open immorality, shacking up with some deadbeat who wasn't even her husband. And so she came to the well when she did because at noon, there were no awkward, painful social interactions to endure. And yet, the anonymity that she was so hoping for wasn't going to happen because there was someone waiting at that well for her. Reason number two, this is awkward. This is awkward because she shows up to the well by herself only to have a strange man pop up out of nowhere and ask her for a drink. Now, ladies, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong, but the moments in life that you dread the most are when you have to interact with some creep. Am I right? Some stranger who emerges out of the shadows Some guy who ogles you at Starbucks, that sick feeling you get in your gut when you can tell that someone is about to talk to you, and even though you're trying to make them go away with your mind powers, they miss every cue, they miss every clue, and they miss the glare on your face, and they come up and they talk to you anyway? You see, that's what this is. That's incredibly awkward. And reason number three that this is awkward, out of all the men that could have asked her for a drink... It was a Jewish man who did so. (laughs) I mean, this is unthinkable. I mean, not only was it uncommon for Jewish men even to speak to women in public, sometimes even members of their own family, but a a serious-minded Jew would have never talked to a Samaritan woman, let alone drank out of a Samaritan vessel, ever. I mean, you, you have probably seen those, those pictures of, uh, from the 1960s of those segregated drinking fountains, one for blacks, one for whites. That's what this was, but worse. There were Samaritan wells and there were Jewish wells and, there was, and, and if, if you were a Jew with his head on straight, drinking from a Samaritan well was simply out of the question. And what this means is that this encounter was awkward in every way possible. Every cultural custom and protocol was violated here. And yet, guess who gives a rip about any of that? It's not Christ. Because what's at stake here is the soul of a sinner that desperately needed salvation. And yet, we can see just how shocking this interaction was by how the woman responds. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, therefore, how... Are you, being a Jew, are asking me for a drink, being a Samaritan woman? I mean, you can hear the tension in her voice. The, the grammar actually indicates that she's both shocked and probably irritated. How could you, possibly, of all people, be asking me for a drink? What have you been hiding under a rock the last 700 years? Have you lost your mind? And yet yet, why is this so countercultural? Look at the end of verse nine. It says, "For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and vice versa, by the way." You see that verb "associate? That, that literally means that they don't use or share anything together." That's the meaning of the verb. Meaning their lives were so separate that Jews and Samaritans would never use the same utensils. They would never go to the same restaurant. They would never go to the same shopping mall, let alone live in the same part of the country, let alone drink from the same cup. Zero interaction with one another. Which means this conversation is on the brink of being scandalous. And yet, and yet... What Christ is about to say in response to her incredulity is one of the most clever conversational blindsides in the history of clever conversational blindsides. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, if you had known the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give to me a drink, you then would have asked him, and he then would have given to you living water. Do you see what he does there? She is shocked, shocked that he would even dare speak to her, to which he replies, well, that is shocking, I admit. But what's even more shocking is that if you had any clue who I was, you would have asked me for living water that satisfies the deepest longings of the soul. Do you see it? All of a sudden, in an instant, the tables are turned. The plot has twisted. The rug is pulled from under her feet. This is absolutely incredible. At first, he was thirsty and she had the water, but now all of a sudden he is speaking to her as if she were the thirsty one and he had the water. Instead of asking her for a drink, he just declared to her that she is the one that needed a drink from him. I mean, she is amazed that he would even dare speak to her. But the really amazing thing is not that he asked her for a drink, but that she didn't ask him for a drink because the water that he has to give is called living water, and he calls it the gift of God. (laughs) Unbelievable. And notice there are two things that, she, that he says she doesn't know that had she known them would have changed the conversation completely. Number one, she doesn't know the gift of God. She doesn't know it. I mean, God has something that he is giving away free of charge to the people who need it so badly, and she has no idea what that is. Number two, she doesn't have a clue who it is that is standing right in front of her face. Because had she known that, she would be the one doing the asking. I mean, you can see it, can't you? He is just tantalizing her to ask, to to thirst for that which alone that he has to offer, which raises the question, doesn't it? What is this mysterious gift about which Christ speaks? I mean, what is he even talking about? And I think the text makes it perfectly clear. Look again at verse 10. If you had known the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give to me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you living water. That's the gift. Living water is the gift about which he speaks. And you see, the very fact that it is a gift means that it's free. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't barter with God to get it. He is under no obligation to give it to you, and yet he wants to. He really, really wants to. And yet the question still remains, doesn't it? If the gift of God is living water, what then is the living water? I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor for what? What is the living water about which he speaks? Because whatever it is, whatever it is, it satisfies the deepest longings of the soul. And you can tell that it does because of the way Christ described it. Notice he didn't describe it as a tub of water. He didn't describe it as a pond of water or a puddle of water. No, whatever it is, it's not stagnant or stale or dormant. No, the picture is of an ever-flowing, never-ending, thirst-quenching fountain of water, so life-giving that it almost seems alive. And yet, what is it? And some people will say, well, this refers to the Holy Spirit. No, not in this text, it doesn't. And other people will say, well, what this is, is eternal life. And that's close, but not quite. And other people say, well, what this is, is salvation as a whole. And they're really close, but that's not the whole story. You see, what Christ is doing here, when he talks about the living water, get this, he is drawing upon centuries of rich Old Testament metaphors that describe God himself in this exact same way. The living water is God himself. Jeremiah 2.13, listen very carefully. My people have abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9. They drink their fill from the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Isaiah 55, 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost." Jeremiah 31:25: "For I satisfy, I satisfy the weary ones, and I refresh everyone who languishes." I mean, don't you see? What Christ is offering this woman with a thirsty soul is access to God himself as that which alone satisfies the human heart. Because to be sure, God is a judge. That's right. And God is the creator. Absolutely. And God is the king. That's exactly right. But God is also the fountain of living waters. And the entire reason why Jesus Christ came to the planet was to make a way for thirsty sinners to have privileged, undeserved access to God as a fountain of delight. And so, oh believer in Christ this morning, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten women, wives, and mothers, have you forgotten that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be as satisfied as you possibly can be in God? Or have you fallen into the trap of thinking, well, the, the world gets the pleasure, but Christians get the rules? The world gets to swim in an exotic ocean of sensual pleasures, but, but the church must content themselves with the fact that although they miss out on the pleasure, at least they're doing the right thing. Is that how you feel? God help us. God help us. Now, don't misunderstand. There are rules lots and lots of rules, sweet, authoritative, satisfying rules from the king. And if we're doing them right, it is a delight to keep them. But Christianity cannot and must not be boiled down to mere rule keeping as if that's all it was. Because when Christians begin to think that way, they begin to shop elsewhere for soul satisfaction. They begin to search spiritual thrift stores for discount delights and counterfeit pleasures. And to be sure, the porn is on sale. The compromise is on clearance. I mean, they're practically giving away the American dream with its promise of fulfillment. And you put those things into the cart of your soul thinking that they satisfy. And yet I am here to tell you that Jesus Christ has something better to give. And what that is, is God himself, the all-satisfying fountain of delight to the soul. You see, the only, and I repeat, the only way to dislodge the sin issues of the heart is by being supremely satisfied in God. And I know you want to know how to do that, but, and I'll show you at the end, but I want you to first notice her response to the living water. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing with which to draw. And the well is deep. Where, therefore, do you have the living water? Now, clearly, she and Christ are not on the same page here. She's, she's still lagging behind, thinking that he's talking about literal water. She, she doesn't know what living water is. She just knows that it sounds good, and she really, really wants it. But her thinking is still in purely physical terms. And she's a sharp lady, and she makes an astute observation. Sir... Uh, you have nothing with which to draw and the well is deep. You see, the more she thinks about this stranger's claim to offer living water, the more skeptical she becomes. He's got no bucket, no cup, no container. This well, which still exists today, by the way, is about 100 feet deep. There's no way that he can make good on his claim. So she puts him on the spot. Where do you have this living water? Show it to me. Let me see it. If you've got a rabbit in your hat, I want to see it. And then confused, skeptical, and maybe a little sarcastic, look where she goes in verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who himself drank from the well and his sons, who gave us this well and he drank from it and his sons and his cattle. In other words, who do you think you are? Well, this well not good enough for you? You think you have something better to give than this? I mean, this well has been quenching our thirst for 2,000 years, and you're telling me you have something better to give? Well, you're not. What do you, think you're greater than our father Jacob? Is that what you're saying? Yes, ma'am. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I'm saying. Which brings us finally to the superior comparison. Superior comparison to verses 13 through 15 His response to her is absolutely unbelievable. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water shall thirst again. But whoever should drink from the water which I shall give to him, he shall never thirst again. But the water which I shall give shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I don't know if you heard that or not, but that is jolting. Almost as if pointing a finger down to the well, he says, hey, look, I just want you to know, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. In other words, you drink this, you're only going to be thirsty again. No matter how much you drink this, the physical properties of this water only allow it to work for a little while. It is good, but momentary. It is refreshing, but temporarily so. To be sure, you need it to survive, but it can never, ever provide the permanent, long-lasting satisfaction for which you seek. And you want to know something profound? That exact same thing that Christ just said can also be said about anything in life that's not God. Food, wealth, relationships, road trips, vacations, entertainment, adventure... Nice houses, successful careers, academic achievements, productivity, family, politics, affirmation, being admired, found attractive, moral accomplishments, exotic sexual delights with multiple partners, you name it, even if you had what are perceived to be the highest pleasures on the planet, mark my words, you will go to bed thirsty. Why? anything other than God just doesn't reach deep enough to quench the raging thirst of the soul. That's why square peg, round hole, it doesn't work. And so to the non-Christians in this room, I just ask you, I don't know what it is that you're drinking to fill the black hole of the soul, but let's let's at least level with one another and let's at least admit that the things you're looking for satisfaction aren't working. Not really. Not the way you hoped, at least. And the reason for that is because all the things you are hoping in to find soul satisfaction are never, ever designed to provide it. Only one thing reaches deep enough, and it is the God who created you. And by the way, privileged access to this satisfying God is exactly what Christ is offering. We see it in verse 14. He essentially says, Anything else will never satisfy the soul. But whoever should drink of the water which I shall give, he shall never thirst again. Would you hear that? If you drink the water that Christ has to give, you will never thirst again. That word again in the Greek text, es-ton-ionon, literally means forever. It means for eternity. Meaning what? Infinite and eternal satisfaction of the soul. Are you kidding me? That is what everyone is looking for fountain of life, the spring of eternal life, the secret to immortality is here, and it was God himself the whole time. I mean, this woman for years would go to bed with strange men, hoping that it would silence the screaming siren of her soul, only to wake up the next morning to find that the ache was still there, and it was deeper than ever. She'd shack up again with another loser, hoping again that it would work out this time only to be disappointed and to have it end in disaster. But now, finally, she was being offered the thing that she always wanted. And you know that thing, that, that generous thing that Starbucks does where they say if you're not completely satisfied with your drink, they'll make it again for free? You know that thing? I just want you to know that Jesus Christ doesn't have a make it again for free Policy. Do you know why? Because it doesn't have to. That's why. Because the water that he has to give satisfies forever. The question is to whom? To whom is he offering this living water? To whom is he offering access to the living God who alone satisfies the deepest cravings of the soul? Look at the text. What does it say? But whoever should drink of the water which I shall give, he shall never thirst again. Anyone. Anyone may drink. That's right. Anyone may drink. If you have thirst, and you do, and if you have thirst, non-Christian, and you most certainly do, you may come and drink. And maybe you'd be thinking at this point, Jared, you say that, but you don't know me and you don't know what I've done. You have no idea of the kinds, you would not believe the kinds of things that I have thought and the things that I have done and the things that I have participated in. And maybe you're right. I probably wouldn't believe it, but does it even matter? Because at this moment, Jesus Christ is offering to you, despite what you have done, full and infinite satisfaction in the God who created you. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come and find in God at last what you have sought in vain to find in everything else. Because can you tell what Christ means by the verb drink? I mean, the metaphor, I mean, if God is the living water, what does it mean that you're supposed to drink it? And I think it's clear. Faith is thirst. Thirst that recognizes its infinite need for what is infinitely satisfying, namely the infinite God himself. You see, the amazing thing is not that Christ can give you water without a bucket, but that his water satisfies forever. Look at the end of verse 14 we're almost done. He says, but the water which I shall give shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I mean, that, come on, really? That's absurd. That, that is scientifically impossible. Who has ever heard of a kind of drink that once you drink it, it forms a will, living spring, self-replenishing spring within the one who drinks it so that they never need to drink again? That is absurd. And yet the point is, the point is faith in God through Jesus Christ is like getting access to the kind of water that once you drink it, it doesn't disappear, but produces a self-replenishing spring of and well within that satisfies forever. And why the satisfaction is eternal is because what you get when you trust in Christ is God. What you get when you trust in Christ is eternal life. And eternal life is not merely living a really long time. No, it is everlasting and ever increasing pleasure in God forever. Because have you never read Psalm 107 verse 9? Do you not know what it says? For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good and what is good is God himself. Now there's more conversation to be had and maybe one of these days we'll get to the rest of that conversation but as promised, here are five in a flash lessons from Christ designed to persuade you that he is superior to everything else in the universe. These are gonna go quick. Lesson one. Remember. Remember that Jesus Christ is sovereign over your lives. Remember that Jesus Christ is sovereign over your lives. I mean it. Every moment of every event is under his absolute undisputed dominion. He had to go to Samaria when he did because there was a well there and at 12 p.m. sharp, there was going to be a woman at that well who needed eternal life. And so my point is, Jesus Christ is just as intentional with your lives as he was with hers. Lesson number two. Remember to be strategic in your evangelism. Remember to be strategic in your evangelism just like Christ was. Now I get it, we're not Christ and we don't know the human heart like he did, but we can learn well from the master of evangelism. He just took everyday things like thirst and racial tension and relationships and he used those things to skillfully navigate the conversation to get her to think about the deepest desires of her soul and we would do well to imitate. Lesson three, remember Remember that Jesus Christ loves to save the most notorious and despicable of sinners, which includes every single person in this room. You see, this woman was a Samaritan with messed up theology and a filthy life. And it's not that those things didn't matter. They most profoundly did matter. It's just that they didn't keep Christ from offering her what she needed most. And what she needed most was God in whose presence is fullness of joy. Lesson number four. Remember the shortcomings of everything else to satisfy Remember the shortcomings of everything else to satisfy. I mean, I've said it so many times and I will never be done saying it, but Jesus Christ doesn't say no to joy and pleasure. He only says no to the things that get in the way of true joy and pleasure, which are found only in him. And how do you get satisfied in God? Like, how does that practically happen? I just want you to know it's not rocket science. It is scripture. That's how you get satisfied in God. And by that, I don't mean that the Bible is a Harry Potter book of spells that automatically, magically changes anything just because your eyes gloss over the words. No, it's not magical. It is supernatural, and there's a difference. And the reason, the reason why most people in the church, why their Bible reading malfunctions is because of one simple reason. You ready? They read the text too darn fast. They don't go slow enough. They don't savor the text. They don't meditate on the text because you have to understand the Bible is not only the menu which gets us to the feast, but it itself is the feast. And so when you read the scripture, when you open up the scriptures in the morning, you need to go slow, go small, go deep, and savor the text like fine cuisine. Lesson number five, then we're done. To the non Christians among us, remember that Jesus Christ alone is the source of what you want the most. And what you want most, God alone can supply. And what God supplies is himself as an all-satisfying treasure forever through faith in Jesus Christ. And so my question for you is, what good reason can you supply for your rejection of Jesus Christ? Is it that you have honest questions? Fair enough, let's talk. Is it that you really want to research before you make a decision of this magnitude? Okay, I get that, you should do that. But is your reason for rejection, is what's keeping you from Christ, this fearful sense that if you are made to give up your favorite secret pleasure, that you will be missing out? Is it that you think Christ is an obstacle to your joy? that he gets in the way of what you think will make you happy because, boy, do I ever have news for you. Jesus Christ is not the obstacle to your joy. He is the object of your joy. And so I am pleading with you this morning to stop drinking from the shallow streams that can never satisfy and to drink the living water of Jesus Christ, which is none other than God himself. Let's pray. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Oh, Lord, I pray for the women and the wives and the mamas especially this morning. Oh, Lord, always faced with the challenge of not matching up. It's hard, Lord. It's a high calling to be a woman and a wife and a mother. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give them profound encouragement this morning. Oh, Lord, you have called them to a task that they cannot possibly do on their own resources, in their own strength. And so I pray that you would help them learn the secret of Christianity, which is to despair in their worthless resources to live the Christian life. And they would cast themselves upon you for your endless ones. Give them strength, give them courage, give them encouragement, give them them a grand vision of you from the text of scripture. Help them see there is hope. Lord, you have provided through Christ all that they need to do what you command. And I pray that they would savor their role as a woman, as a wife, and as a mom. Oh Lord, I pray that kids and husbands, that they would appreciate their moms today that they would be grateful for them, that they would know they would know they would be in a radically different place without them in their lives. And so I pray that they would do what the children and the husband did in Proverbs 31, and that they would rise up and call their mom and wife blessed. Pray for this congregation, Lord. I'm so grateful for them. Give them encouragement. Give them strength. And I pray that they would look to you to supply what only you can, namely endless and eternal satisfaction in the soul. And it's in Christ's matchless name that we pray. Amen.